Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. You would turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the 20th chapter, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background first as to why we're looking at Acts in the 20th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 32, and we're going to really hone in on one specific word and a specific phrase that contains that word. But as we were going through our series on the church and looking at the different aspects of the church, the different lessons to the church, the characteristics of the church, and the admonitions that Christ gave the church, uh, we, we alluded to this portion of Scripture. And I made a mental note of this, that at some time I wanted to go back, I wanted to really, through a microscope, examine what's being said here, to really pay close attention to this, so that we could have some understanding in what the Apostle Paul was teaching and what Luke was recording there in Acts for us. So I want to give you a little background. Paul here in Acts chapter 20 is in Miletus, and there he summons the elders from Ephesus, those overseers who would lead and shepherd that flock in Ephesus, and he brings them to him, and then he encourages them gives them instruction. He also lets them in on some news that probably was rather saddening to them. He let them know this is probably the last time that you're ever going to see me face to face. And Paul in this last meeting together with these leaders from Ephesus is going to give them some words of caution and warning. He tells them a little about what the Spirit has already revealed to him. He lets them know that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to face hardship and persecution and he's going to be arrested. But he's going to warn his brothers, his co-laborers in Christ, those who he has worked alongside of in the establishment of the church at Ephesus and what was going on there. And he warns them of this. He warns them that people from their own ranks potentially the church at Ephesus. We're going to rise up after he leaves because Paul was pretty good about keeping everything plumb and centered on the Scriptures and on the true gospel. But he says, after I leave, there are going to be some who come here among your own. And he uses a term, they're going to distort the truth. There in verse 30, we'll see that in just a moment. He's letting them know that there will be those who distort the truth, the truth that he has worked so diligently to teach this church and all the churches that God would use the Apostle Paul to establish and to nurture. This Greek word here for distort is diastrepho. And that Greek word has a significant meaning, and that's why I want to go back and I really want to hone in on this word. It means to corrupt. Or as we see in our English translation that I read from, to distort. But even greater than that, it means to, specifically in the usage here, pervert the truth. So Paul meets with these church leaders and he says this, when I leave, and I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, some bad things are going to happen to me, but it's for the cause of Christ, so we rejoice. But when I do leave, there are going to be those from among you who pervert the truth, who distort it. Now, this was nearly 2,000 years ago in this place, as I've already told you, called Miletus, where he had summoned his church leader. And here we are 2,000 years down the road. We need to be aware and to be aware of the fact that the enemy has not stopped trying to distort the truth that Paul is talking about here. That the enemy is constantly trying to distort orthodox biblical Christianity. What the enemy does not try to do, please listen to me, he does not try to get rid of Christianity. He knows that he cannot. Not even the gates of hell shall prevail against Christ's church. 
What the enemy has, as we well know and as we will see today, what he has been successful and crafty in doing is this. He will take something that is not and label it as if it were. For instance, he will take a false Jesus and label him Jesus. Church, please pay attention to this. Just because something has the name Jesus on it, I don't care if that's Christian music, a Christian t-shirt, a little plaque that you bought at Kirkland's. Just because it has the name Jesus on it does not mean that it's talking about the biblical Jesus that we see in the Scriptures. And so Satan has been very crafty in the old bait-and-switch techniques that we're all too familiar with. And so we see today in our time, he is doing and has been doing again for quite some time the same thing. Distorting and deluding Christianity to the point that when we see Orthodox Christianity, we don't even know that it's Orthodox Christianity. When we see Orthodox Christianity, we have been fed this false Christ, false Christianity, false teaching from the Word of God for so long that when we do hear the truth of these things, many of us cannot believe and will not believe in Orthodox Christianity. You see how successful the enemy has been in distorting the truth? Paul said it was going to be so. He says, as soon as I leave, as soon as I leave, because Paul was dedicated to the true Christ, to the true gospel, to the Word of God. He said, as soon as I leave, there will be those from among you who try to distort everything that I have been teaching you. And I fear that even in our day, many in this room are in eternal peril because they are holding on to an unbiblical, distorted form of Christianity. Because that form of Christianity has been preached to you your whole life. It was taught to you as if it was orthodox, though it was not biblical. If it is not biblical, church, it is not orthodox. It is heterodox. That means it is false. And so what we must do, we must stay true to orthodox Christianity. We must revisit it Every single day. Paul is going to instruct these leaders here who would go back to Ephesus to do exactly this. Watch. Acts chapter 20, verse 30. It says this in verse 30, if you're reading with me. Back up to 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, telling them what they are supposed to do as church leaders. He says, watch yourself. That means guard your, your own doctrine and theology closely. He says, watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God. Lead the sheep, which he bought with his own blood. Remember who they belong to. He says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise. Here's what we need to pay attention to and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. They were wanting to start their own thing with distortion. So be on, on your guard. Remember that for three years I have never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Verse 32, he says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up, and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What does Paul say to this group of people in short here? He says this, you have a job to do. Your job is to keep watch over the flock, because when I leave, there will be those ferocious wolves that come to devour God's sheep. You've been entrusted to watch over them and to care for them. Because as soon as I leave, there will be those who distort the truth. If they were distorting the truth in the first century A.D., well, wouldn't it be wise of us to know that they are still attempting to distort the truth in our time? Even more so. Then he goes on and he tells them in verse 32. He says, I commit to you, I commit you to God. You're in God's hands. And the word of His grace. 
Just rest in God and rest in his word because it can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He said, stay true to the word. Now, the reason that we look at this today is because I believe in our time. Some 2,000 years after Paul addressed the leaders of Ephesus and those who were accompanying Paul there, we're still seeing the effects, especially in the American church, of what I call distorted Christianity. I want us to look at that in detail because it doesn't matter throughout the ages what title that it bears. It doesn't matter what group of people that it affects, what country it's being taught in. We're going to see that throughout the ages, this distortion of Christianity takes on similar forms. And the reason that I speak of this today, the reason that I would warn you, number one, is I care about you and your soul. But number two, as you're going to see today, many of you have bought into a lie. You bought into a lie at some point in time by a man who stood behind a pulpit wearing a tie or a suit, holding a Bible, labeled a preacher, Preaching about a Jesus who was no biblical Jesus at all. Teaching you a gospel that was no biblical gospel at all. I'm afraid that some of you are ensnared to that. I pray today that as we look at the truth, the truth would set you free. Isn't that what Scripture says will happen? The truth will set you free. And free indeed. So I want us to examine distorted Christianity. Because distorted Christianity can be narrowed down to some distinct characteristics. Number one is this, distorted Christianity distorts, write it down, the true person of Christ. Paul knew that these people were going to distort the true person of Christ. And they replace him. Remember, Satan doesn't try to abolish Christ and get rid of him. He knows he can't. So what he does is he replaces him with a different kind of Christ. For instance, in our time, he would replace him with a woke Jesus. A woke Jesus. You know, the, the social justice Jesus who fixes all of our worldly problems and injustices. It's funny, isn't it? That many people believe in this Jesus who came to fix all of our worldly problems and all of our worldly injustices. But the problem with that is Jesus the Christ from Scripture says this in John's Gospel, in this world you will have trouble. This woke Jesus promises the absence of trouble and the alleviation of trouble. But the true Jesus says you're going to have trouble, and you're going to have trouble of all kinds. Isn't it interesting how they are in direct contradiction to one another? The woke Jesus fixing all the world's problems, and the true Jesus saying there's going to be problems because sin has entered into this world. And the only cure for sin is me, and when I return, I will cure sin once and for all. But until then... You're going to live in a world full of trouble, full of chaos, full of suffering, full of pain, full of death, full of sickness. But many have believed in this replacement Jesus, the woke Jesus, the Jesus who came to make the world a better place, make all your dreams come true. You know, his main objective was to come to this world and to stamp out inequality, right? We've heard much about this Jesus in the years adding up to this message today. He came to end inequality and discrimination so that everyone would have a level playing field. The woke Jesus, who so many people are preaching, so many people are trusting in. He is the preamble to the Constitution, Jesus. You know, the Jesus who, who came to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The woke Jesus, you know the one. And most all churches are standing talking about this morning. The woke Jesus who wants you to have a good life here. And he wants everyone to have a good life here. The only problem with that church is this. That's not the reason Jesus came. He came to bear the wrath of God in the place of wicked sinners to die their death, to pay for their sins, to pay for their sins on a cross. 
so that all sinners who would trust in him by faith, repenting and turning to him, would receive cleansing and mercy from God, being saved from his wrath in this life and in the life to come. This was the Father's will for the authentic Orthodox Jesus, that he came to do the Father's will, and that was that he would redeem sinful men for the Father, that the Father in eternity past had already predestined to be redeemed. But so many have believed in a woke Jesus. Because they love this world so much, they just want this world to be a better place. Jesus never promised any of this. Jesus never promised you a good life, a prosperous life, a pain-free life, a sickness-free life. In fact, our loving Savior let us know all of that is going to be a part of your life. But take heart. I've overcome all those things. I've overcome every single bit of this world. Jesus never promised the good life or the best life to anyone. You would think that if he had, the apostles would have enjoyed such a life. Wouldn't they have? Those who were closest to Christ, did you know, all saved John died for their faith in Christ, martyred, tortured, beaten, beheaded, crucified upside down, burned at the stake. All of them. And it's only the American church who believes in the woke Jesus that teaches that if you follow him, your life is just going to be peachy. But Jesus says different. Mark chapter 13, verse 9, the real Jesus says this. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings and witnesses as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father his child. Children will, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's the true Jesus. He didn't say all your problems in this world will be fixed, all injustices and indifferences and inequality and discriminations. He didn't say that those things are going to be fixed in this lifetime or in this world because they're not going to be. But oh, how many so-called churches spend all of their effort and all of this time trying to make this world a better place instead of warning people that they must repent and turn to the true Christ before it is everlasting too late. Not only do they replace him in this distorted Christianity movement, the true person of Christ, with a woke Jesus, they also replace him with a weak Jesus. And I can just be honest with you, I'm tired of the weak Jesus. They deny his deity, his supremacy, the fact that he always has been and always will be the second person of the Godhead, they deny him as the true King of kings and Lord of lords, reducing him simply to a weak, impotent, and sometimes even effeminate, girly man. Have you noticed the depictions so many times of Jesus as just weak and sissified? Can I tell you this? Jesus was not weak and sissified. He was no girly man. We see Jesus take leather throngs and weave them together, indignant, because the religious people of his day had made the Lord's house a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. And he wove them together, and he literally flipped over the tables in anger, righteous anger. And he drove them from the temple area because they were misusing what God had given them. Well, that doesn't sound like the weak, girly man Jesus of today. Always talking softly. Never commanding. Never giving one imperative sentence only asking us what we think about things and what our opinions are on things and how can he serve us. That's the weak Jesus of our day. The Jesus who just wants everyone to get along and play nicely. 
However, the Jesus of the Bible says something totally different than that. And I want you to see this because there's plenty of liars out there who will lie to you and tell you that this weak, effeminate, girly man Jesus is the real deal. He's not. Here's what the Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Read it with me so that you don't think that I'm making this up. Jesus himself said, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? That's not the weak, woke Jesus of our day. Right? It was all peace and cookies and flowers. He says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Watch what Jesus says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Oh, yes, it's harder to accept, isn't it? Because the true Jesus just told every single one of you mothers and fathers in the room that you must love me more than you love your own children. Oh, that's not popular in our culture, is it? Verse 38 says, And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He said, If you're not willing to die for me, you're not worthy of me. Now, the real Jesus says this, if you don't love me more than your own family, and if you won't die for me, then you're not worthy of me. He goes on and he says this, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, that's not the woke, weak Jesus that we see that the true Jesus has been replaced by, is it? No, in fact, he's the opposite end of the spectrum. In fact, most people don't even want to believe in the true Jesus. Because it doesn't mean gaining like the liars have told you. It means losing. Even losing your family, your friends, could be your job, and ultimately it could be your very life. That's what Jesus the Christ not Jesus, the woke, weak, impotent man that has been created and distorted Christianity, says, but Jesus, the Christ. And I'm afraid some of you have trusted in a woke, weak Jesus. Not only is he woke and weak, he's also worldly. Isn't it interesting how we have a worldly Jesus now? Who died to give every one of you the world, right? Isn't that what the whole charismatic doctrine is based off of, the word of faith movement? Jesus came to this earth so you can have stuff. You don't even have places to put all your stuff now. Why would you need more stuff? But many in their distorted views, because Christianity has been distorted as a whole throughout the ages, they really believe that Jesus came to give them worldly possessions. He died to give you a better life with more things. And the blessings that you see from God are only the blessings that measure up in the standards of the world. You don't see the true spiritual blessings of God that are in Christ Jesus. You miss those. Many have distorted Christ into this worldly Jesus who gives you everything that the world has to offer. You know, just like Disney World where all your dreams come true. Don't fall into the trap of trusting in this worldly Jesus. Because Jesus, again, He contradicts that in everything that he teaches. He lets us know plainly and squarely that in following him, we might lose everything. Can we ask this question? Would you still follow him if you lost everything? I'm afraid that the, the, the church culture that we live in, who thinks that Jesus is a worldly Jesus who gives them everything, if he were to take all of those things back, they would be done with the biblical Jesus. How about you? Distorted Christianity first distorts the person of Jesus Christ. Why is it important that we cover this topic? It's important because to trust in an unbiblical Jesus is to have an unbiblical salvation, which is no salvation at all. 
If you just trusted in a Jesus who gives you your worldly desires, you did not trust in a biblical Jesus who cleanses you of all of your sin and your defilement before a holy God. You see the difference? You see how effective the enemy has been in distorting the truth so that people believe in a Jesus who is not the true orthodox Jesus of Scripture? Be very careful. Be very careful that the Jesus that you claim to be serving is not some man-made satanic distortion of the true Jesus. Secondly, distorted Christianity distorts the true person of Christ, but then distorted Christianity distorts the true gospel of Christ. Paul in his day addressed this rather frequently, but especially to the Galatians as we See there in Galatians 1, and we'll look at that in a moment. But how crafty and deceptive the enemy has been in regard to the gospel. He doesn't just take the gospel out, because he can't. What he does is he labels things that are the gospel that aren't. And there are so many of them that I don't have time to tell you of all of them today, nor do I know all of them, because as we speak, I'm sure that there is another one being birthed. Oh, do you see how he's done this? Make so many false gospels that we don't realize what the true gospel is. And if we keep them out of the Word of God, they will never know. They'll never understand. He's been quite successful in doing that. Distorted Christianity distorts the true gospel. Just as we saw they distort, distort the true Christ by replacing him with woke Jesus, weak Jesus, worldly Jesus. Distorted Christianity also replaces the true gospel with, number one, a user-friendly gospel. A gospel that is friendly to those who use it. Right? They want to make the gospel palatable. Less feeling tastes great gospel. Leaving out the holy wrath and judgment of God. Leaving out man's repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ. Just, just make it user-friendly, where what you do is you continue in the world, doing what you do, never repenting, never trusting, just doing what you do. All you have to do is pray this little prayer, walk the aisle, pray the little prayer, and then you're going to heaven. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not the gospel of Scripture. It's another gospel. It's not the gospel that the apostles preach. And let me tell you what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. He says this in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He's warning the church at Galatia because they are already turning to a different gospel. What the gospel that they were turning to was was a distorted gospel that was now intermingling because the influence of the Judaizers, it was intermingling works and grace. When you intermingle works and grace, it's no longer grace. But he says this, I'm astonished that you would turn to any different gospel. He goes on to say, which is really no gospel at all. A gospel that is contrary to the Scripture is no gospel at all. I don't care if your favorite preacher when you were growing up preached it. I don't care if your grandma preached it, your grandpa preached it, your mom, your dad. If it is contrary to Scripture, it's a false gospel. It's really no gospel at all. He says, as he continues in verse 7 there in Galatians 1, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. There it is again. Not only do they pervert the person of Christ, they're perverting the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, he says, if you hear another gospel even come out of my mouth, he says, let him be eternally condemned. You hear an angel preach the gospel that's contrary to what we preached to you originally. Let that angel be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men? Isn't this kind of seemingly out of place? Watch what he says. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? No, it's not out of place at all. You know what he's saying? I don't want to, nor do I care about being popular to man. I'm not going to alter the gospel just because you want me to. I'm not going to alter the gospel just because others are distorting it. Or am I trying to please men? He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Those who alter the gospel to make it user-friendly to please men, 
they are not servants of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul. But the user-friendly gospel that let's make the gospel more palatable also attempts to make the gospel less offensive, or in fact, non-offensive at all. It removes the calling of men from a position of sin into a position of righteousness. It removes anyone preaching that man is wrong in and of themselves, totally depraved. It removes that, and it attempts to say that maybe there's just a little bit of good in man. But unfortunately, Scripture says different. Scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after him. There is no good in man apart from Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that the modern Gospels, the user-friendly Gospels, all want to include that perhaps there's just enough goodness in man to make the right decision? You will not make the right decision on your own thought goodness. Why? Your righteousness is that of filthy rags. You have nothing to offer a holy God. It is He that offered Himself to you. See that as the Scriptures declare it. They introduce this user-friendly gospel, which as Paul has already stated, is no gospel at all. Oh, we're so afraid to tell men that they're sinners, aren't we? We get to that point. We say, well, why don't you come to church with me? Because <laughs> you know I'm going to tell them the truth. But you're afraid that if you tell them that they are a sinner, separated from a holy God, alienated, cut off, condemned already, you know, the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preach, you're afraid that if you tell them that, they won't be your friend anymore. I'm so thankful. There was a preacher who preached the gospel to me. He didn't care if I was going to be his friend or not. He was not living for the approval of man. He was preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is in, in the true gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners, by the sovereign power of God, are called to faith and repentance by the Holy Spirit. I'm thankful for those who are diligent in preaching the true gospel, not watering it down and making it user-friendly. Because a gospel that contains no sin... No wrath, no judgment for sin. Gospel does, that does not guarantee the unrepentant hell while guaranteeing the repentant eternal life is not the gospel that Christ nor the apostles nor Scripture proclaims. It is another user-friendly, more palatable, acceptable gospel. They distort the true gospel of Christ, making it user-friendly. Not only user-friendly, but they replace it with an unbiblical gospel. This unbiblical gospel says this, we come to Jesus on our own terms. Let me scream this from the mountaintops so that you can hear me. Be careful. When your salvation experience starts with you or I, right? When you say I, did this and was saved. I did that and was saved. I, 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 or you. If the emphasis is you, the emphasis is not Christ. And if the emphasis is not Christ, it is not biblical salvation. It is a man-made fairy tale. See the Scriptures as truth. So many people are believing in an unbiblical gospel. It is no gospel of grace at all. It's a gospel of works. Why are you saved? Because I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I was baptized. I joined a church. I gave my life. I changed. Oh, you're awful familiar with it because you've heard it, some of you, from your own mouths. You know what I did to contribute to salvation in my life? I sinned. And I was a professional. And that's the only contribution that I made. My need for salvation. And it is Christ who then sovereignly, according to the will of God, died to save me, a sinner. It starts with you. It's unbiblical. I know. Your grandma taught you something different. Brace yourself. Your grandmother was dreadfully wrong. A victim of distorted Christianity. In fact, it had been distorted for 2,000 years before it got to your grandma. But let's end it here. 
Let's determine here that we are going to be biblical in the gospel. And the biblical gospel says this, all men are condemned because of sin, and the only hope that they have is Christ. And we must tell them that, that unless they repent, they will perish in hell for all eternity. You can't clean that up. If you clean that up, you don't truly love that person's soul. Love their soul, and love their soul enough to tell them the truth, even if they are offended by that truth. The truth is the truth, and their offense does not change the truth. In fact, a gospel that doesn't offend anyone is not the biblical gospel. Jesus said you're going to be hated because of this message. You're going to be hated because of him. Oh, but distorted Christianity has distorted the true gospel with that unbiblical gospel, haven't they? They ought to change their songs. They ought to start singing some to Jesus, I surrender some to him, I begrudgingly give, right? Because that's really how they live their lives. Because the true gospel calls us to surrender, doesn't it? And it calls us to surrender to the Lord Jesus. Oh, there are so many people in error. I can just tell you that this is an error. Who would tell you this? That Jesus was my Savior and some years later he became your Lord. Wrong answer. Absolutely impossible. You can't cut Jesus in half. He is Lord and He is Savior all at the same time. He is always both, never one or the other. Your problem is you believe in some weak, distorted gospel that told you that He can be Savior now. And you, you, you got a ticket to heaven. And later on, we can worry about sanctification and holiness in your life. Don't bother and worry about those things right now. Those things are indicative of lordship. Where he's actually in control of your life, mastering you, leading you. But in the unbiblical gospel, lordship salvation is left out, isn't it? That's interesting that even people who want to believe that distorted truth will quote this scripture, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Watch this. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How can you believe in a wicked heart? You cannot. Your wicked heart is opposed to God. But in confessing Jesus as Lord, what does that mean? Jesus, the name, means Jehovah saves. He is Jesus. Jehovah saves the Lord. You cannot confess him as Savior and later confess him as Lord. Let me just tell you, if that's happened in your life, you were not saved until he was both. Stop deceiving yourself. He's not going to divide himself because he himself said a house divided will never stand. He says you must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. But Kirk, you said that a sinful man's heart is wicked and he can't believe. Absolutely right. Isn't it awesome that he promised us in Ezekiel that he will take our heart of stone and he will exchange it with a heart of flesh? He does all the work. And then when he gives you that heart of flesh, you know what? In your heart, you then believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and you confess that with your mouth, not just that salvation, but every day of your life as you live upon this earth. The unbiblical gospel says, no, that's not required. Any gospel that doesn't require surrender is not a true gospel. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 9 in your Bibles in verse 23. Luke 9, 20, 23 says this, Then he, and it's talking about Jesus, said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For all of you who don't believe in lordship, salvation, and surrender, what do you do with that? When Jesus throws a must, and you act as if it's an option, you have believed a distorted, unbiblical gospel. Gospel with a king who submits to his subjects instead of his subjects submitting to the sovereignty of of the king. Oh, don't we see that in our day? So many realms. However, this is not a concept that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. 
It's foreign to the Bible. It is foreign to historical Christianity. It is foreign to Orthodox Christianity. Jesus and the apostles preached a biblical gospel of surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Your head knowledge of him is not true saving faith. True saving faith bows the knee to his lordship. Why? Because I think so? No, because scripture says so. Stop being deceived. You've bought in to distorted Christianity, which is a user-friendly gospel, an unbiblical gospel. Thirdly, a universal gospel. It's a gospel where, ultimately, a loving God is going to save everyone based on their sincerity. And it can be sincerity in their beliefs that differ from Christianity, but surely a God who is so good and so loving, and He is good and He is loving, but He is also just, and He is also indignant toward the wickedness of men. Surely he's going to look at our sincerity. And surely he's just going to grant to us eternal life in the end, even if we didn't really turn to Christ. In our efforts to try to find him, which you make none, just let me let you in on my sarcasm right now. But in your efforts to try to find him, uh, where you found God was in Buddhism. You found Satan. Where I found God was in Hinduism. You found Satan. Where I found God was just, you know, living a good life, doing good to others, practicing karma. In fact, Christians, stop saying that word. It's Eastern mysticism. Get it out of your vocabulary. Don't you think that's going to count for something, Kirk? It doesn't really matter what Kirk thinks. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Kirk thinks about will your sincerity count for anything. Let me tell you what the Word of God says. The Word of God says it's very plain, very clear. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Will Jesus save all the people in the end, even if they were sincere and never professed Jesus as Lord and Savior, surrendering their life to Him? Will He just come in and save them all? No, He will not. In fact, he makes that very clear so that we don't misunderstand that in John's gospel, the 14th chapter in verse 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You'll never come to God apart from Jesus Christ. Don't fall into the deception and the distortion of this world's teaching that we're all just children of God trying to seek him in our own way. No, you're not. You're children of darkness apart from Jesus Christ. You're seeking self. You're seeking sin. You are easily deceived. In fact, your own heart deceives you. Turn to Christ today. Let his light shine into your life. Then you will see the truth. Oh, but many want to believe in a universal gospel, a gospel that contains no true faith, no true repentance toward Christ. Unfortunately, it's not the gospel at all. Look at Acts chapter 20 as the apostles preached the gospel. Verse 21, it says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks. This is the same chapter we're looking at. Paul saying what he preached, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our, say it with me, class, Lord Jesus, our Lord Jehovah who saves, our Lord and our Savior all at the same time. We must surrender to him, not fight against him. Well, Paul knew all about that, didn't he, when he was Saul? And Christ himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against me? Why are you fighting against me? Paul was sincere in his beliefs. He thought that he was helping God by killing Christians. Jesus Christ straightened him out on the issue. Oh, it's, it's interesting how the true gospel will always cancel out the false gospels. Paul knew immediately. Something was different. Something had happened. We can't believe and trust in a universal gospel where all people in the end will just be given entrance into heaven and eternal life. Well, it sounds good. Makes everyone feel good. But it's not true. We must devote ourselves to the true gospel and to let people know it is an exclusive gospel. The only ones who will have eternal life in heaven 
The only ones who Christ has prepared a place for are those who believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, repenting of their sin and trusting Him and Him alone in full abandonment of oneself and surrender completely to Him. That's what Lord means. You see that many have bought into the distorted gospel. May you hear the true gospel this morning. The exclusive gospel. That Jesus Christ only saves those who believe. And call others to faith and repentance just like Christ and just like the apostles did. Don't worry about if they like you or they're your friends after that or your family members after that. He said, people are going to disown you. Thirdly, and I'll wrap it up. Distorted Christianity distorts the true person of Christ, the true gospel of Christ. And then distorted Christianity, finally, distorts the true word of Christ. And they have made many attempts to do this throughout history, right? The first attempt that they make is to abolish the true word of Christ, right? It would be better if we just got rid of the word of God. I mean, if we took the word of God and we just took it out of the equation, there would be no arguing, right? Every man could believe as he sees fit in his own eyes. We saw what happened to the people in the Old Testament who did that bad news, right? Well, it's the word of God that is our plumb line to truth. What, do you want to know Truth. A pilot did. What is truth? And standing right before him was the truth, Christ. But distorted Christianity takes the word of God, and their first attempt is to abolish it. Let's get rid of it. Let's rid the earth of God's word. We know that this happened probably as soon as the word of God was being written. But we know this historically, and I'm going to bore you with some history. But historically, we know that in 303 A.D., that there was a staunch effort to get rid of the Word of God and Christians, of course, by the Romans. In fact, the Roman emperor Diocletian he issued an edict. That edict said this, that all Christians and their Bibles were to be gathered and destroyed. And then he, he followed that up with action, intense persecution, burning of the Bibles, and killing those who possessed these parchments. And feeling that he had accomplished something, isn't it funny, the arrogance of man, feeling that he had rid the world of this pestilence, this nuisance known as the Word of God and the Christians who read and believed those pages. On top of a burned and extinguished Bible, Diocletian does this. He built a monument on which he wrote the words in Latin, extincto nomini Christianorum, which means this, the name Christian is extinguished. He actually thought that he had accomplished his mission. In fact, he went a step further and he fashioned a medal with an engraving over that same monument. That medal says this when translated in English, the Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods restored. Diocletian thought he had accomplished something. Oh, wouldn't you like to see his disappointed face in hell right now? When he realizes how prematurely that celebration was. That he did not understand that he was messing with God's eternal people and he was messing with God's eternal word because the people of God lived on and so does the word of God because the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God endures, it stands forever. But men throughout the ages have tried to destroy the word of God, to abolish it. How about another interesting one? We could spend days talking about these, but one of my favorites is under Henry VIII of England, William Tyndall. This was in the 16th century, and William Tyndall was seeking to translate the Bible in English so that the commoner could read it. And it was actually forbidden against the law. So what he did is he fled to Germany, where he continued to translate the Bible in English. And then what he would do is he would have those Bibles smuggled back into England, where he had fled from. And Henry VIII had Tyndall arrested 
for doing these things. Tyndall's desire, as he is quoted in saying, I will cause a boy who drives a plow to know more of the Scriptures than the Pope. Oh, I'm so thankful for the work of William Tyndall. Those of you who have an English Bible in your hand right now, be thankful for the work of William Tyndall. Much of it comes at the cost of his life. He gave his life first and foremost for Christ, but secondly, for the Word of God and getting the Word of God out so that even a plowboy, a commoner like myself, could study the Word of God and know the will of God without having some priest or pope say it to me. Before his death, William Tyndall prayed this, that the eyes of the king would be open. Now let me just tell you how he died. He died... He was placed to be burned at the stake, but he was strangled before he could be burned. Then he was burned after he was strangled. Oh, he too was living his best life now, wasn't he? William Tyndall died so that we could have the English Bible in our hands and read it today. As you follow along, I pray, is that Bible in your lap is the true Word of God preserved throughout the generations because of the work of a sovereign God and godly men who would do what they did. He prayed that the king's eyes would be opened. And at his death, he prayed for Henry VIII. And less than three years later, less than three years after the death of William Tyndall, Henry VIII issued a decree that a copy of the English Bible be found in every single church in England. Now, you can study the history on that. There's more that goes along with that. Henry VIII made a religious move because he wanted a divorce and wanted to approve divorce. All of that is irrelevant. Who cares? God used it to make sure that the Bible was placed in the hands of the people. William Tyndall's prayer was answered. We could go on and on about those who have tried to abolish the Word of God unsuccessfully. How about Voltaire, the French atheist philosopher in the 18th century. We could talk of Voltaire. We could talk about the communists that are closer to our day that have tried to stamp out the Word of God. Uh, we could even move it to even more relevant, closer times to us. How about the abolishment of the Ten Commandments from our courtrooms in this country while you and I were all sleeping? Or the abolishment of the Word of God from the classroom? But try as they may, it's never going to go away. The Word of God will stand forever. Distorted Christianity tries to abolish it unsuccessfully. And then what they do, because they can't abolish it, they amend it. Changing or modifying the Word to fit their lives. This is where they take something out of context to fit their agenda or their presuppositional ideology. They mend it so that it approves of their sinful lifestyles and their man-made worldly religions. Let me remind you, that is how every cult has started throughout history. By taking the Word of God and taking just a piece of it out of its context, ignoring the truths that are all around it, making it say what their evil hearts desire that it says. They amend the Word of God to fit their lives. So I would never do that. Oh, but you have, many of you, sitting around talking to people. You hear these things. What do you feel this passage says to you? The same thing that it says to everyone else. Exactly what it means. Exactly the intended purpose of God and the intended purpose of that author, author and that attended, in that intentional time and period. It says what it says. We're not to handle it or mishandle it in any way. Not to amend it to fit our desires or our lifestyles. Oh boy, aren't people amending the Word of God to fit their lifestyles in our day? God is love. So I ought to be able to love anybody I want. Even if they are of the same sex and I desire to have immoral sexual relations with them. Don't use God for your immorality. God does not approve of such things. We need not even visit the Scriptures that talk about that this morning. You are familiar with them. Even very nature shows that that is detestable. 
For God made man for woman and woman for man. Not man for man and woman for woman. The end of the discussion. It's very obvious. But oh how wicked men are trying to distort it in our day. Unfortunately, even in the church or the so-called church, there are really no churches at all. They alter the word and amend it. And thirdly, they do this. They abolish it or they attempt to. They amend it to say what they want it to say. And then they abuse it, using it in the wrong manner to achieve their desired sinful fleshly goals. Just like Jude spoke of in verse 4 of Jude, it says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. And they are godless men who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality and denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and, here it is again, Lord. They abuse the Word of God, twisting the truth to fit their lives. Uh, they do it like this. Judas ate too. Yes, he did, all the way to apostasy. I think Jesus didn't know exactly who Judas was. He told him he knew exactly who he was, and it was destined that he betray Christ because someone must betray the Christ. He was the one. So well, I don't like that. Take that up with God. Not the one who made that decision. They twist the truth. Well, Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus didn't hang out. Would you stop that kind of thinking? He didn't hang out. He had a mission. He didn't come here just to hang out with you guys. He came here to seek and to save the lost. He had a mission to accomplish, and I'm thankful that he accomplished that mission on a cross, that he didn't come here just to hang out with you or for you and him just to be homeboys. He came with purpose. But he, hang out, he hung out with sinners, many will say. Oh, you see it posted and stamped everywhere these days just so people can try to justify their sinfulness. You know, the interesting fact about Jesus, when he hung out with sinners, they didn't stay that way. Because <laughs> he wasn't hanging out with them. What he was doing is proclaiming the truth to them. That unless they repent, they will perish. And ask Matthew about it, who was once a sinful tax collector. He repented and wrote the gospel of Matthew, was a follower of Christ. Ask Zacchaeus, who stole from people and cheated people. But on the day that he met the Lord, he said, I'm going to pay them all back. My heart is changed. Well, ask the Apostle Paul when he encountered Christ, one who murdered Christians, gave the approval for Christians to be persecuted. Ask him if Jesus just came to hang out with him when he fell to the ground under the power and the majesty of the Lord. He surrendered his life to Jesus Christ from that point forward because of the sovereign grace of God. Many people twist the truth. Oh, Jesus hung out with sinners, so I'm just going to remain the way that I am, and he's going to keep hanging out with me. He's not hanging out with you. You are separated from him. You are separated from him because of your wickedness, and you must repent and turn from your wickedness and turn to Christ, not as your homeboy, but as your Lord and your Savior. Not someone who you hang out with, but someone who you follow with every ounce of energy and strength that you have. You surrender your life to him every single moment of every single day. Why? Because he is worthy of that. Is he not? No, but we've created these make-believe humanistic Jesuses who are not worthy of anything. Just give us something and we'll be happy. He did give you something. He gave you his back on a cross and it was ripped from his body. He gave you his brow and it was a crown of thorns pressed into it. He gave you his side where a spear was shoved and blood and water flowed. He gave you his hands where they drove nails in his hands and his feet. He gave you those things so that you would believe and so that you would turn from sin and turn from self and turn to Christ. Why would you ever want some kind of substitute, distorted version of that? Stop abusing the Word of God, making it what you want it to be. Using it to control or manipulate people. Again, that's what the cults do. It's what false religion does. Anything called Christianity that distorts the truth of God in an effort 
to justify themselves is not biblical Christianity. What do we do with this? What should our response be? Well, shouldn't there be a response? Because you know what I've said today is true. You know that Christianity has been so distorted. You know that many of you have accepted this distortion. There must be a response. Because to see these obvious truths of this message and to not respond is to ignore the deception and the distortion that is before our very eyes. It has been brought to light this morning. What do we do, Kirk? How do we battle against distorted Christianity in our day? Because it's prevalent, isn't it? How do we battle against it? Three things, and I'll promise I'm done. Acknowledge first. Acknowledge and surrender to the biblical Jesus as Lord and Savior. A distorted, counterfeit, woke, weak, Jesus will not save you. Surrender to the true King of kings and Lord of lords today. Surrender to Jesus as defined in Scripture as your Lord and Savior this very moment. Repent of your sin. Believe. Trust that He is the only way to salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. He is the only way to God the Father. Trust in the biblical Jesus to save you today. Number two, preach the true gospel of grace. Preach the truth, all of it. Include faith in Christ. Faith in Christ alone. But also include sin and judgment and repentance of sin. Preach the wrath of God in a literal and real hell for the unbelieving and the unregenerate. Proclaim loudly and unashamedly as evangelists did in the Pilgrim's Progress when he went to the city of destruction and he pled with Christian and he said, flee the coming destruction. Flee the wrath that is to come. Well, we scream it from the mountaintops. If you believed in it, you would. Proclaim to sinners that they would flee to the cross and that the burden of sin would be lifted from their back. Forgiveness. Mercy would be received in Christ. Without these truths, there's no gospel at all. You're not preaching the gospel. It doesn't include these truths. You're preaching a fairy tale. You're preaching a distorted version of Christianity, which is no true Christianity at all. Acknowledge and surrender to the biblical Jesus as Lord and Savior. Preach the true gospel of grace. And thirdly and lastly, accept God's word as the only absolute truth in this world. The only one. View everything through the lens of Scripture. Not through your opinion, what you learned as a kid, what someone taught you. View everything through the lens of Scripture. Scripture alone. It is what the whole Reformation was built off of. Sola Scriptura. Not Scripture plus philosophy as we see in our day. Not Scripture plus theory. Not Scripture plus culture. Or Scripture plus ideology. Scripture plus all of our presuppositional thinking. Scripture plus our conspiracies. Not Scripture plus politics. Not Scripture plus Fox News. Scripture alone. When we base everything on Scripture alone, we do exactly what Paul was instructing the elders at Ephesus to do. Go back to the Word of God. Stay there. Live there. Why? Because there are those who will rise up among you who attempt to distort the truth. May it never be so on our watch. May we stand against distorted Christianity and the truth of the Word of God because of the true Jesus Christ, because of the true gospel that He has given us. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you so much for your word. Thank you for clarity. Thank you for truth. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that your grace and your mercy would be showered upon them. As you would draw them out of darkness and into light, opening their dead, blind eyes to see the truth. And that that truth is their sinners in need of 
of a Lord and a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved other than the name of Christ. May you draw sinners to yourself today. May you draw Christians to a deeper devotion to the truth and to the one who gave himself for them, the Lord Jesus. May they walk in the truth of your word. May they bring you glory in every moment of their life. We pray and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.